Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. When I was about nine or ten years old, my mom loaded me and my two younger sisters into the car, and we headed off to visit some friends that lived an hour and a half, two hours away. It was a quiet car ride. I was uh, playing with a toy in the front seat, and my sisters were asleep in the back. And I remember about partway through, the steady whir of the wheels on the road changed into kind of a, a bumpy rumble. And I thought maybe we turned onto a gravel road or something, but all of a sudden there was a bump and quiet for just a couple of seconds, and then <clears throat> was slammed forward into the seatbelt, and there was a whir of commotion, the wind was knocked out of me, and the next thing I remember, I was standing in front of the car, seeing people move all over the place trying to help. We had crashed just down the street from a bar, and the people were coming out of the bar, and they were bringing cold compresses and first aid kits. Now, I don't know if the people who are in a bar at 11 a.m. on a weekday are the exact first responders you want, but we were thankful that they were there. This was before cell phones, and so uh, we were fortunate enough to have a truck drive by, and he radioed for an ambulance to come, and it turns out that my mom had taken some medication that made her drowsy, and she fell asleep, and we drifted across two lanes of oncoming traffic, fortunately, when no one else was on the road. We ended up in a ditch, hit an embankment, and launched into the air, flew for about 85 feet, and then landed. We would have rolled over, but there was an electrical box that held our car up from falling into the ditch. It could have been a lot worse than it was. My mom had a broken nose or a few goose eggs, but uh, on the whole, we were okay. No one ever intends to fall asleep at the wheel. No one sets out on a drive thinking, you know what, I'll drift off a little bit today. This will be all right. And yet it happens all the time. In the same way, no one starts off their Christian life with the intention of drifting away from their faith. No one commits themselves to Christ thinking, you know, I'll do this for a few years and then I'll grow cold and I'll just kind of give up on the whole thing. Yeah, I know far too many people who would no longer call themselves followers of Jesus. At one point, they were committed to Christ, but they walked away from their faith. People who grew up at the same church as me, people who were uh, student leaders in the youth group where I was a youth pastor and they were on fire for God or so I thought, people who went to the same Christian college as me, people who prayed a prayer of surrender at an Inspiring Stories weekend here at Christ Community Church who would no longer call themselves followers of Jesus. How do we keep ourselves from falling asleep at the wheel? How do we keep ourselves from abandoning our faith? How do we hold our commitment to Christ until the very end? This is the second week in our series on the book of Hebrews. As a church, we've got a four-year Bible reading plan where right now we are going through two different books of the Bible, uh, an Old Testament book, Leviticus, and a New Testament book, Hebrews. And they are both amazing, profound books. But if I'm being honest, they are some of the more challenging books in the Bible. They're a little bit you know, heavy sledding here. And so we're trying to help out as much as we can. In terms of the book of Leviticus, uh, we're uh, dedicating every episode of our weekly podcast to talking about one of the readings in Leviticus each week. And Nikki and Eric and I are having a blast doing this. Uh, you will be amazed at our conversation about unclean skin diseases this week. It turned out to actually be pretty profound. So you wanna check that out on Monday. Uh, also, a couple of weeks ago, I did a workshop about uh, how to read the book of Leviticus, four really big ideas that will help you understand it. Uh, we've posted the video of that online at biblesavvy.com. You want to check it out. 
Also, we've just started a Bible Savvy Twitter account uh, where I'm personally tweeting about uh, the readings each, each day, providing resources and some thoughts to get you going. Uh, so you'll, you'll wanna follow that. Uh, it, it's worth your time if you're struggling in Leviticus especially. As far as the book of Hebrews goes, Pastor Jim and I, we are giving each of our sermons between now and Easter to talking about one of the readings in uh, Hebrews. So that's why today we are in Hebrews chapter three. So if you've got a Bible, Go ahead and turn with me there. Hebrews is a New Testament book, which means uh, starting from the back and flipping forward is easier if you're looking for it. Hebrews was a letter written to a group of Christ followers who were under a lot of pressure, and they were considering abandoning their commitment to Jesus. They, they thought, you know, we tried this whole Jesus thing, it's getting hard, uh, maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be. And this letter is encouraging them to stay the course, to not give up on Christ. And so we're gonna be reading uh, in chapter three, starting in verse seven, uh, just so that you understand what's going on right as we get going. uh, The author is gonna quote from a psalm, and the psalm is describing uh, an event in Israel's life where they were rebelling against God. So that's the, the poetry part at the beginning. It says this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage gives us three questions, three questions we can ask ourselves to keep us from drifting away, to help us hold on to our commitment to Christ to the very end. Here's the first one. Where is my heart getting hard? Where is my heart getting hard? Follow your heart. It's a phrase I've heard on the lips of hundreds of characters as diverse as Winnie the Pooh and Napoleon Dynamite and the ghost of Babe Ruth in the Sandlot. Over and over again, the stories we tell say, follow your heart. What I've never been told, though, is that that advice is redundant because everybody follows their heart. In fact, it's impossible not to follow your heart. Listen to what the Bible has to say about this in the book of Proverbs. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do. When the Bible uses the term heart, it's talking about the center of a person, the place from which all of our thoughts and desires and actions flow. Easiest way to think about it is like an arrow sticking out of your chest, pointing at the things that you want, and wherever it points, that's where you're headed. And so that's why over and over again in Scripture, it warns us of the danger of our heart leading us astray. Look again at verse 12 here. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Picture that arrow turning away from the living God, pointing at something else, so that's where you're headed. The the phrase for this that's used throughout this passage and throughout the Bible is having a hard heart. A hard heart is is one that's closed off to hearing from God. 
A lot of times when the Bible uses that phrase, a hard heart, it also follows up with this description. They have ears, but they do not understand. They have eyes that see, but do not perceive. It's like God is speaking and you're walking around, la, 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 I can't hear you. A hard heart is an unresponsive heart. I wonder if any of you have seen the signs of a hard heart in your own life. People with a hard heart, they lose their desire for the things of God. They don't desire scripture or prayer or worship. They don't want to hear God's word preached. People with a hard heart, they can show up at church week after week and actually feel good about that. And yet, if you look at their life, they never put into practice anything that they hear. You look at their life 10 years ago and they've been going to church the whole time, but it looks exactly the same today. People with a hard heart, they resist addressing areas of sin in their life. Soft-hearted people struggle with sin still. They still are tempted and sometimes give in to sin, but they're grieved by it. And they're working on ways to to grow and fight against that. But hard-hearted people get calloused about that. They just don't want to deal with it. People with a a hard heart, they do all sorts of things to not face their own behavior. They avoid friends who might call them out or they distract themselves with all sorts of things or they come up with excuses to show why what they're doing is not actually wrong. People with a hard heart, they they drift towards bitterness and resentment and blaming others and never looking in the mirror. They, They end up with a critical edge to their life. Unfortunately for many of us, far too many of us, that description hits close to home. That's scary because having a hard heart is a dangerous place to be. If your heart turns away from the living God, where is it turning toward? Towards death. In the Bible, hard hearts destroy relationships and they kill character and they uh, perpetuate injustice in society. You heard about Pharaoh, the one who enslaved the people of Israel. The reason he would put up and perpetuate with that injustice was the Bible says again and again, the number one description of him is that he had a hard heart. Ultimately, a hard heart that turns away from God turns towards spiritual and eternal death. Or to put it another way, only a heart that turns toward the living God finds life. But what happens when someone who has once professed faith in Jesus turns away from him? What are we to conclude when that happens? Look at verse 14. It says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This is a very sobering verse. Pay close attention to what it says. We have come to share in Christ. That's present tense right now. We've come to share in Christ right now if we hold our conviction firmly to the very end. That's in the future. So we've got present faith and trust in Christ if it lasts into the future. But what about someone who doesn't hold that conviction to the very end? That's the sobering part. Here's how I'd sum up this verse. Saving faith is lasting faith. Saving faith is lasting faith. If you have genuine faith right now, it is a faith that will last to the end. And if your faith doesn't last to the end, it was never genuine faith. Saving faith is always lasting faith. The the author of Hebrews uses an Old Testament story to illustrate this. Uh, Quoting Psalm 95, he tells the story of the first generation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. They've been set free, and now they're, they're heading to the promised land. So this is the generation of people who saw Moses call down plagues on the Egyptians. And they, they were at the Red Sea, and it parted, and they walked across on dry land. And they stood at the base of the mountain when God came down in the thundercloud. They saw all of this. And yet every time on their journey when they faced trouble, the same thing happened. They rebelled against God. 
run out of food and they're like, duh, this is it. We followed Moses out here just to starve in the desert. And of course, God provides food from heaven. They, they see an army and they're like, this is it. God just wants to kill us. What are we doing out here? God miraculously defeats the army. Every time they go to the same thing, they say, we should go back. Let's go back to Egypt. It was so much better than they're romanticizing their past. You ever heard someone do this? Oh, it was so much better. We had food. We were taken care of. We were all right. Conveniently omitting the fact that they were slaves. Slaves who cried out to God for freedom and God actually answered their prayer and set them free. And now they're like, no, it was better back then. It finally came to a head when they got to the edge of the promised land and God said, here's the home that I've provided for you. They send some scouts across and the scouts come back. They're like, it's everything God promised and more. And yet, there were some military outposts there. And so the people are like, "Uh uh-uh, no way, we're not going in. And Moses said, no, this is it. This is the final step. Trust God to go in there. And they're like, no, we won't budge. And so this is what God says. This is uh, what's quoted in verse 10. His conclusion was, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. In verse 11, it says, they shall never enter my rest. They won't go into the promised land, the home I've prepared for them. They they trusted God and Moses enough to leave the land of Egypt, but their repeated rebellion and ultimate refusal to trust God, in spite of all that they had seen, revealed what was always true. They have not known my ways. Their, Their faith didn't last, which means it was not saving faith. And the author of Hebrews is saying, I don't want this to happen to you. He's pleading with his friends, the church that he loves, saying, don't let this be your story. And I want to do the same for you. Don't let this be your story. If you want your faith to last, you've got to have a long-term plan of how you will keep your heart soft for a lifetime. And it starts by regularly asking the question, where are areas in my life where my heart is getting hard? Where's my heart getting hard? Fortunately, the author of Hebrews goes on to give us some helpful ways to keep our hearts soft. And that's where the second question comes in. Second question is, what lies am I believing? What lies am I believing? Remember the movie Inception? It came out about 10 years ago, which makes me feel old, okay? Uh, Because when you're a preacher and you're like, I gotta think of some nice contemporary illustration to show that I'm relevant, and the thing you come up with is from a decade ago, it's like, yeah, you're an old guy. That's what happened. So the movie Inception, if you haven't seen it, the premise is that uh, there's a technology that allows people to enter the dreams of others. And so they can go into the uh, dream and they can do all sorts of mind-bending things that you can't do in waking life and it's really cool. But there's a problem, there's a danger. That if you get too far into a dream, you might forget that it's a dream. You might start to confuse the dream and reality. And so when everybody travels in a dream, they carry along with them an object that they know really well. An object that behaves differently in the dream than in waking life. And so when they start to doubt what's real, they take out that object to check and see how it behaves so they can tell if what they're experiencing is true or false. Should they believe what they're seeing and hearing or not? And this is what the author of Hebrews is asking us to do, to find ways to check if we are believing lies. Look again at verse 13. It says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness. See, this is our challenge. Sin is a liar, and sin is a good liar. You recognize any of these lines? Ah, it's not that big of a deal. 
Consequences won't be that bad. I mean, no one's even gonna know. It it won't hurt anybody. It it feels natural. How could it possibly be wrong? Just one time, just one more. That's all you need. If you do this, it'll bring relief. You've earned this. You, You deserve this. You've been going through a hard time. It's your right. Nobody's gonna look out for you, so you better look out for yourself. If you don't do this, you'll be rejected. If you do this, you'll finally be accepted. You know what? You won't be able to handle the difficulty, the pain of doing it God's way. Okay, so it might bend some rules, but it's what's necessary in these circumstances. I mean, the right thing isn't always the practical thing. You know what? You can have God and have this too. Just ask for forgiveness when you're done. Other people do this. They seem to be doing all right. Why can't you? It is okay to be angry if you know you're right. You've already gone this far. It's too late now. Just go all the way. God is holding back on you. If he was meeting your needs, you wouldn't have this temptation. You wouldn't have to do this. Temptation is always based on lies. And at the root, it's always based on a false promise, a false promise that sin will meet the deep needs of your heart. I mean, sin offers something that you actually need, that by doing this, you will gain acceptance or security or meaning or fulfillment or joy or a cure for the hunger and the shame and the loneliness. And that's why we keep coming to sin again and again. But sin is a liar. Sin overpromises. The cost is always higher and the payoff is always less than advertised. Even when it delivers an initial dose of what you need over time, it gives less and less and takes more and more. And eventually it demands everything and gives nothing. And in the end, it kills. And that's the reason we need to find ways to resist the lies of sin because our life depends on it. In Greek mythology, there's a group of dangerous creatures called the sirens. Uh, Sirens are uh, half bird, half beautiful woman. They're like the mermaids of the sky. What the sirens do is they live on an island where uh, they watch for passing sailors and they sing a song that is so beautiful, so captivating that it hypnotizes the sailors. They can't resist it, so they steer their ship toward the island where they crash on the rocks. And there are a couple of heroes in Greek mythology that managed to avoid this fate. The most famous one is Odysseus. Maybe you've encountered Odysseus if you had to read the Iliad or the Odyssey in high school or college. And Odysseus, he's sailing across, and uh, he realizes they gotta get past this, but he really wants to hear what the sirens are singing. So he has his crew uh, tie him to the mast of the ship, and then they stop up their ears with wax as they sail by. So he hears the song, but they are not uh, tempted to go and turn toward the island. No matter what he says or does, they won't let him go. And this is one of the main ways that we resist the lies of sin as well. We put limits on ourselves. We, we choose not to hang out with certain people or we avoid going to certain places or we put filters and monitors on our devices because we know that temptation is so strong, the lie is so convincing that our best hope of resisting is to stop up our ears and tie ourselves down. There are some of you who are living your lives without boundaries, which is why you, you are uh, losing the battle with sin. It's why your faith is heading toward a shipwreck. We need boundaries. You need boundaries. But boundaries are not enough. Because even with boundaries, we can be like Odysseus. We still want to hear the song. 
It's part of us still buys the lie. We crave the sin. And even if we're wise enough to prevent ourselves from acting on our desires, we're still kind of entertaining it. Turns out Odysseus wasn't the only person to figure out how to get past the sirens. There was another hero named Orpheus. Uh, Orpheus was on a boat as they sailed past this. And instead of having everybody stop up their ears or tie anybody down, Orpheus, who was the greatest musician of his age, got out his harp. And he started to sing and play a song that was even more captivating, more beautiful than anything the sirens could produce. And so as the men sailed past, instead of hearing the siren's song, they were drawn to Orpheus's song. And so they were not distracted by what they were calling out. To truly escape sin's deceitfulness, we need to hear a more beautiful song. And this is what the gospel offers. The gospel says that King Jesus has already done all that's necessary to meet your deepest needs. In his life and death and resurrection, and now as he rules, he has provided what our hearts truly desire. That means we don't need to look in all these other places to find it because he has given it to us. The antidote to sin is not simply saying, you should not do this. It's saying, you don't need to do this. You don't need to sleep with your boyfriend to gain acceptance because God has accepted you already fully and completely right where you are. You don't need to hold a grudge against that person who hurt you or get revenge because God has forgiven you and he will defend you. You don't need to overwork to be secure because Christ has provided all that you need and secured a future for you. This is how our hearts are truly set free from sin. We hear Jesus's truth. In Jesus, you are loved and forgiven. Your shame is covered. You you are part of a family. You are welcomed in already. You, You have purpose and significance. Your future is secure and nothing can shake that. In God's presence, there is beauty beyond your wildest imagination. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Whatever sin has to offer, it cannot compete with what God has given you in Christ already. If we are gonna stay faithful to the end, we need to recognize sin's lies and believe God's truth. And a simple first step to doing that is to simply ask God to show you where you've been believing a lie. And so I wanna take a moment and do that. Uh, Before I get to the final point of the message, I I want us to take a moment and actually just listen to God. So this is what I'd like you to do. Whether you're at home or you're uh, in one of our auditoriums, I'd like you to take a physical posture of openness. That might mean just kind of opening your hands up like this and putting them on your lap. And we're gonna invite God to speak to us. We're gonna ask God two questions. And after each question, I'm gonna give you a full minute to listen and see what he reveals to you about this. So let's begin with this. I'll pray an opening prayer and then we'll ask God to speak to us. God, search us and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Now take a moment and ask God this question. What lies am I believing? What lies am I believing?
Now take a moment and ask God the second question. What truth do I need to hear to cut through sin's lies? What truth do I need to believe to cut through sin's lies? God, there may still be things that you want to show us. So keep, continue to keep us open to hearing from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's an exercise you may want to do sometime this week. Give yourself a little bit more time to do that. It's especially good if you journal along with that and write down the answers to those questions. Ask God, what lies are you believing? And listen to his answer. Let's talk about the third question we need to ask ourselves. Who is fighting for me? Who is fighting for me? Uh, my wife and I uh, regularly go on uh, road trips to Pennsylvania, which is where some of uh, our extended family lives. And that, this road trip is, is kind of dull. It's not a very interesting drive once you get past the, the city. And so we're always very proactive in terms of staying alert on the road. We try all the tricks. We, we put on music and we crank the air conditioning and we have snacks and caffeine and we stop and we take rest and breaks and stretch. But even with that, it can be difficult. And on trips like that, what we've found is there's really only one thing that works. It's having someone to talk to you. Having someone to talk with in the car. Talking with another person keeps you alert and responsive to your surroundings. Plus, if you're in a conversation and someone else is keeping an eye on you, they can tell if you're getting a little drowsy or uh, see if you're all right or tell you that you need to pull over. And what's interesting about this is this, this is the exact strategy that Hebrews recommends for maintaining faithfulness to Christ. Look again at verse 13. It says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another daily. How do we make sure we aren't deceived by sin's lies? We encourage each other every single day. We talk with each other. We have conversations. We interact with each other. That's the antidote. Again and again, the New Testament is really clear. Following Jesus is not a solo activity. It is a team sport. You cannot, you cannot remain faithful to the end by going it alone. Community is not an optional add-on to following Jesus. You need other people to fight for you and fight with you. I don't wanna to make too many generalizations about people who walk away from faith because everybody's story is different, but I've known enough people that I've started to see a couple of patterns, a couple of things that seem to be true when people walk away from Jesus. The first is this, it's very rarely a crisis moment of decisions when someone says, no, I'm done. It's usually a steady drift away. It's a gradual process when someone starts to drift away from their faith. The other thing I've noticed is that part of that process is becoming disconnected from vital Christian community, start to shed the relationships that kept them connected with God. So it's worth asking yourself honestly, am I connected with genuine vital Christian community? It might be helpful to think of it in kind of three big categories. Gatherings, groups, and partners. Gatherings, groups, and partners. Do you have a gathering 
I'm talking about what we're doing right now, that gathering with one another to, to worship together, to hear God's words together, weekly worship. You know the reason why Jim and I don't just find a, a great sermon by a good preacher and just email it out to everybody in the church? Like, listen to this on your own time. Or we don't just put together a playlist of worship songs. We're like, when, when it's convenient for you, you just you, you listen to these and worship on your own. You know why we don't do that? Because it's not just about the content. It's not just about the individual experience of something that's good for you. It's about doing it in community. It's about seeing each other and hearing each other sing and being addressed together, not just as individuals, but as a church family, as a community. This gathering is where you say, I'm a part of something bigger. This is my tribe. This is not just me. This is, this is a movement. This is a people that I'm a part of. And when we start to lose that perspective, we start to get self-focused and just what's in it for us, and our hearts start to get hard through that. That's why we've been encouraging those of you who can. If your health allows for it, the health of the people around you allows for it, to try to start coming back to our in-person gatherings. We've added a service to create more space for this, and we know that we're all heading out to places that we feel are necessary for our life, work, school, grocery stores, things like that. If you haven't tried church, I think this is one of those things that's necessary. We need gatherings. We also need groups. We also need groups. Uh, you need people who see you, who know who you are, and can speak into your life when you start to drift. So around here, there are two main ways that people get connected with groups. The first one is community groups. That's the main one. It's a group of people committed to walking together, praying for each other, encouraging each other to put into practice the things we're learning from Scripture. And this is your team. It's your squad. It's your first line of defense when you start to develop a hard heart. The other kind of group around here is a care night group. Care night groups are for when you've got something particular going on in your life, something challenging and difficult, grief or loss, an addiction that you can't shake, a, a mental health need, things like that, the kinds of things that all of us go through at different points in our life. A, a care night group is an amazing community to walk with you for a season to find hope and healing through those things. Do you have a group? Do you have a group? Not, not, you need not just a gathering or a group, though. You also need partners. You need partners. A partner is someone who might be a part of one of those groups, maybe not, but they're someone who has permission to, to ask anything they want about your life and permission to speak into any area of your life that they want. Sometimes it's a spouse or a sibling. Hopefully they have permission to speak into your life, but it's really helpful if it's someone outside of your household who can do this. Now, I have an accountability partner. In fact, all of the pastors at Christ Community were all committing, committed to having accountability partners. And for me, that partnership is a crucial part of my spiritual health. Every other week we get together and we talk about everything that's going on. We talk about our spiritual disciplines, prayer and Bible, what we're doing to connect with God. We talk about sin and temptation. We talk about our families and friendships. How are we doing in our relationships with our, uh, our wives and our children and the people around us? We talk about how God's moving in us, what he's doing, what, what, where things are, are difficult or hard. Uh, we pray for each other and nothing is off limits in those conversations. And here's why this is so helpful. Because my partner, and other people who have this will say the same thing, is your partner is the person who can tie you to the mast when you are tempted to believe a lie. They can say, you know what, in this area of your life, you gotta do something to put up some boundaries. But they're also the person who can sing you a better song when you need a more beautiful truth to overcome the lie. So when I talk to my accountability partner about temptation or sin, you know what it does? It shatters the illusion. It's amazing how something that felt so compelling when you were on your own, when you say it to another person, it suddenly seems foolish. It comes into the light. It's like fact-checking your desires. 
What's even better though is my partner can actually remind me of what's true. Not, not just give good advice, but give good news. Your partner is there to remind you of the love and grace of Jesus, even when you fail. To remind you uh, that God has provided all that you need. They point you to the beauty of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the promise of God's presence with you. They say, this is true. This is better. This is more satisfying. Don't believe the lies. Hold fast to the truth with me. And of course, they fight for you. You fight for them in prayer. Partnerships like this are a lifeline. They keep you from developing a hard heart. Do you have people who will fight for you? Here, here's how I wanna conclude. I want us, before we sing a final song, I want us to take a moment in prayer to ask God, what's my next step? I, I don't know what it is for you. It, it might be uh, joining a community group or a care night group or asking someone you know to be an accountability partner or going to see a Christian counselor or, or, or talking to your spouse or a sibling or a roommate or a friend about what's really going on in your heart. But God knows what your next step is. So let's take a moment and ask him what we should be doing. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that when it comes down to it, you have sent someone to fight for us, your son Jesus. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ, the one who loves us and opens his arm to us no matter where we've wandered, calling us back, welcoming us home. Father, move in us by your Holy Spirit. Guard us from having hard hearts. Keep us soft and open, listening to you always. We pray in Christ's name, amen.